podcast of Bethesda Church in Huron, South Dakota. Today, we are continuing our series on portraits of people who pray. We find ourselves in the book of Nehemiah as we look at how God used him to change the focus of a nation. Pastor Roy will give us four spiritual tools that are needed to rebuild a spiritually impoverished nation. I encourage you to open up your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1 and follow along. I do want to say a special welcome to all our visitors today. Uh, we're glad that you are here with us uh, to celebrate the Lord's Day uh, today with us. Just want to say a special thanks to the kids that were involved here this morning. Uh, the trumpet trio, Allison Blum, Tori Reinders, and Josh Weeding did a wonderful job opening our service with the trumpet trio and uh, appreciate the talent in this uh, church. And then Julie Lowen doing the offertory on the piano, the heart of worship. And uh, we are blessed in this church with a lot of talent. And I thank God that they're using their gifts and talents uh, for the Lord. What a great blessing uh, that is. Last Sunday, we started a new series called Portraits of People Who Pray. And so today we are going to continue uh, that series. Uh, last week we focused on the life of Elijah out of 1 Kings uh, chapter 18. And we talked about Elijah, a man of passion. Uh, we talked about the fact that a righteous person has great power in prayer. A righteous person also prays. A righteous person practices righteousness. A righteous person prays fervently. And we also talked about the fact that Elijah was a very ordinary man. And I appreciate that because we can relate to the weakness and struggles uh, that we have in the flesh. And Elijah had flesh and blood just like we do. And then we talked about three things about Elijah. The fact that God, God was able to use him. The first one was Elijah's obedience to God's word. The second one was Elijah's courage to speak for God. Against the opposition, he was willing to take a stand, to be a voice for righteousness, and to make God known, call his people back to himself. The third one was Elijah's concern for the honor of God. This week, as we continue our series on portraits of people who pray, we are looking at Nehemiah, a man with a purpose. There are... Four spiritual tools needed to rebuild a spiritually impoverished nation. And we can relate to that in America because I really believe that we are a spiritually impoverished nation. So when we talk about Israel and Jerusalem today, and while that was the heartbeat of Nehemiah, our hearts should be compelled to think about our own country and the devastation that we are facing as a country as we continually drift further and further and further away from the biblical morals and roots that this country was founded on. So as we open the book of Nehemiah in chapter 1, he says the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, this would have been around probably November, December, in the 20th year while I was in the citadel of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, 
are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. The first thing we see here at the outset of this passage is spiritual tool number one, a real honest assessment of our situation. The one thing I see in our culture today is people are not willing to think deeply about our culture and what is happening and about society and about their own lives. Our lives get so busy with so many things, uh, social media, television, movies, music, uh, friendship, um, school, work. Um, it's a challenge to actually have time to slow down, to think and contemplate deeply about our situation. And the willingness to ask the hard questions. Nehemiah was willing. It says he asked questions. He says in verse 2, I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and about Jerusalem. He wanted a clear picture painted. He didn't want this false image. He wanted to know how bad is it? What is the story? What is the situation? How bad really is it? It reminded me of the story of a program I watched on television. I've seen it a few times. We're big Andy Griffith fans. And little Opie, of course, he was struggling in school. He was getting bad marks on his report card, and he was really afraid to come home that day. And, but he came home, and his dad had already gotten his report card, and his dad was blown away by his report card. He's looking at it, and he's like, Social studies, A. Arithmetic, A. Spelling, A. In, in every one of the classes, he had straight A's. He said, look at that, Aunt B, all A's. And he was amazed. And, and so Opie comes home, and before Opie can, you know, was blown away by it as well, he went out and bought Opie a brand-new bicycle and hid it behind the couch. And he wanted to give it to him, and he said, you got all A's. But what he didn't realize was the teacher had called Opie up earlier in the day before he went home and said, I'm sorry, I made a mistake on your report card. And she said, I wish you would have really gotten all those marks. And she began putting in the real marks, and some of them were pretty poor. And so the dad got a false report. And in reality, you're thinking Andy must not have really been in tune because had he realized the papers that were coming home through the weeks, they weren't A's. 
So, uh, but anyhow, it was a story of showing that the tension of struggling with Opie trying to tell his dad the truth and give him an honest assessment of really, really was. And so the report card given to Nehemiah was a bad report. If we were to think about the security of the people of Jerusalem, the grade would have been unsatisfactory. If we would have talked about the religious commitment of the people, it would have been unsatisfactory. If we would have looked at the government and the leadership of Jerusalem, it would have been unsatisfactory. If we would have looked at the moral climate of the people of Jerusalem, it would have been unsatisfactory. If we would have looked at the economy of the city, it would have been unsatisfactory. They did not even have the resources to rebuild the walls. Well, let's consider Nehemiah himself. Nehemiah was a Jew who was born after the exile. And I think that's important to realize that Nehemiah did not physically see the city of Jerusalem in its glory. When they were worshiping God and serving God and honoring him, he did not witness that personally. He had to get that from the stories of his forefathers. Just as he had to get the story of the devastation that the city has been burned, the walls have been torn down, the city has been destroyed, and God's people are in utter disgrace. Because it had happened over a hundred years ago. It had been laying in ruin and rubble. And now Nehemiah comes in, and so for God to give someone that kind of vision and that kind of insight can only happen, not because he was a great administrator, not because he had organizational ability, not because he was a great leader, although all those things are true, but I think the one that really solidified his leadership was he was a man of prayer. He was a man of incredible prayer, waiting on God, sitting before God, and asking God what he could do to restore his people and his honor. Throughout history, God has raised up people to accomplish his purpose. He raised up Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, Daniel, and now Nehemiah. I reminded of the verse in 1 Chronicles 12.32. It talks about of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command. To know what Israel ought to do. Nehemiah was saying, God, what do I do? I know about the situation. I know how poor it is, but what can I do about it? And that's the question we should be asking in the church. We see our culture going downhill, getting deeper and deeper into sin and further away from God. What can we do as a church and as a people? And I'm going to address that in a few minutes of some things that I think we can do. I reminded of a story of an angel who appeared at a faculty meeting. I don't know that this was a true story, but it sounds interesting. He tells the dean that in return for his unselfish and exemplary behavior, the Lord will reward him with his choice. Infinite wisdom, um, infinite wealth, or infinite beauty. Without hesitating, the dean selected infinite wisdom. Done, the angel said, and disappeared in a cloud of smoke and a bolt of lightning. Now all heads turn toward the dean, who sits around, surrounded by a faint halo of light. At length, one of his colleagues leans over and whispers, say something. The dean looks at them and said, I should have taken the money. (laughs) 
wisdom, to understand the times, to know what we should be doing. God raises up Nehemiah to a position of influence, and I want you to notice again the last line of chapter 1, I was cupbearer to the king. This is key because God had put Nehemiah in a strategic place to build influence and relationship with one of the most powerful men on the face of the globe and to be able to talk with him. And they had such a relationship that when you get into chapter 2, it says that Nehemiah came into his presence and his job was to taste the wine to make sure it had not been poisoned because the king would have many enemies. And he would have to make sure. He would have to be a man of highest integrity and trust to taste that wine, to make sure and protect the king. He was in a strategic position. He goes into the king in chapter 2, and he's like, why are you sad, Nehemiah? And he says, well, my people are in disgrace. The city has been torn down, and I want to go back and rebuild it. And he's like, what do you want me to do for you? Flip over to chapter 2 for a minute. He says, what do you want me to do for you? The king says in verse 4 of chapter 2, the king said, what is it you want? And how did Nehemiah respond? I want you to see this. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. You see, he was a man of prayer. He wasn't just saying, well, this is my dream. This is my vision. This is what I want to accomplish. No, this is the vision that God has for me and his people. It's important. God has blessed our church with a piece of property over here. You know, the most dangerous thing we could do is move ahead and do something without the blessing and the vision of God. God gave us that property. The greatest thing we can do as leaders, as pastors, as elders, as deacons, as leaders of this church, as Awana leaders, Sunday school teachers, ABF teachers, is we need to seek the face of God and say, God, you gave us that property. What do you want us to do with it? And when do you want to do it? You, you have a plan. You have a vision for Bethesda Church. God, what is your plan? What is your purpose? And oh, what blessing there could be. And it may not happen in my time or anybody else's time, but God's timing is crucial. And we have to be careful that we trust the Lord and say, God, what is it? And pray to the God of heaven. Say, God, what do you want us to do? Others had tried unsuccessfully to rebuild the walls and restore the city for nearly a hundred years, and Nehemiah did it in 52 days. That's what God can do. His influence with the king. Nehemiah was a man of great discernment. Why? Because he was a man of prayer. If you want more discernment in your life, we need to spend time in the Lord's presence and talk to him often. Let me say this, Jerusalem, the people of God, there was incredible religious deterioration among God's people. This religious deterioration, listen carefully, because this is what's happening in our culture, has led to political decay. And political decay will also lead to moral confusion. That's what's happened. In our culture, there is a religious deterioration that has happened in our culture. And what has happened in our political world? Decay. More and more political corruption. More and more decisions that are being made that are against God's word. And not seeking God. 
And what has happened? There's moral confusion. Now we have people growing up, kids growing up, and even some adults who want to change their identity, their gender identity. It's like, are you kidding me? But that's what's happened. There's this moral confusion because it starts with religious deterioration that happens in a culture, and it impacts the politics. And so what do we have now? We have the Supreme Court trying to decide, should we redefine marriage? It shouldn't even be a discussion. shouldn't even be an issue. But what happens is these moral issues then become political issues. These religious issues become political issues. And there's no reason, rhyme or reason, why that should happen. But God's people had engaged in idolatry that led them into Babylonian captivity. And what did the king do? What was the political response when they were in captivity? Worship this golden image, this calf that I had set up. And this is what happens when our politics starts making decisions and they want us to begin to worship something other than God. Worship this golden image, 90 foot tall, 9 foot wide. Worship this golden image that we have set up. And do not pray to any other God. See, our, our politicians are leading us away from the Lord. Not all. We have some Christians, some believers, and we need to be praying for them and encouraging them in their work. Let's look at number two, a renewed appetite for God. We see that he has made an assessment of the situation. He's told that those who are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept, not for an hour or two, for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And if we go over back to chapter 2, we notice he opens the chapter within the month of Nisan, which would be around March or April. So that means about three or four months have transpired. But he's waiting before God, broken over his people, broken over the shame that has come to the city of Jerusalem. And God is not being honored and he's broken. One of the strategies of Satan is to trick our taste buds. We begin to develop a hunger for other things that curb our appetite for spiritual things. You know, it's just like eating junk food. You snack before dinner, you eat candy before dinner. How's dinner? Not as good. You don't eat as much, you don't eat right, you don't get the protein you need. Same is true spiritually. We start snacking on junk food. And things, taking things in that we shouldn't take into our lives, it begins to impact my spiritual appetite. So the question is, how is my spiritual appetite? And you know how you get it back? By asking God, God, give it back to me. God, give me a desperation for you. Spend time before the God of heaven and, and beg and ask him, say, God, I don't have it right now. I have to say that to God sometimes. God, I don't have it right now. God, I don't have the appetite I should have. I don't have the desire for you that I should have. I can do things myself. And I have to pray, God, give it back to me. Again and again, we have to pray that. And I know if that's true for me, it's got to be true for you as well. We are too easily swayed by our culture to begin to think like the mainstream of society and lose our appetite for God. Nehemiah had a broken heart for the situation we should as well. He sat, he prayed, he fasted, and he pondered the situation. What does this show in Nehemiah? We said he was a man of great discernment. 
That should be true in our lives as well. He was also a man of great humility to sit and stop and pray before God. Mourning over the pitiful condition. I was reminded this morning that today marks the 20th anniversary of the Oklahoma City terrorist bombing where Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols killed 168 people and injured more than 680 in the federal building in Oklahoma City. Today is the anniversary of that terrorist attack. Since that time, we've had numerous attacks in our culture. We now have the rise of ISIS, who is a clear and present danger to our world, and I believe is gaining ground in our country. We, as the people of God, can sit back and do nothing. That's one option. Another option is we can sit back and pray and just expect God to do everything and move and fix the situation and expect our government to do that. Or, I think another option is we can sit and pray and plead with God to interact on our behalf and contact our government officials and respectfully ask them to stop ISIS. And I think that needs to happen. If you look on the back of your sermon notes today, I have verses, Romans 13, 1 and 2. And I just want to make reference to this. The second box there says, as Christians, our responsibility is not only to pray for our leaders, but to encourage them. So the point is we are calling not to condemn, not to criticize, although some of us would like to. <laughs> There's times I'd like to, but to encourage them to do what's right and to take initiation and steps. You're encouraged to contact our government leaders and respectfully ask them to use their God-given authority to stop the evil activity being carried out by ISIS. Ask our government leaders also to uphold the biblical definition of marriage laid out in the Bible that marriage is between one man and one woman. I can guarantee you the government is hearing from the other side. And if we stop and think about history and what has happened in our history, when we read about the Jewish Holocaust, the church was too silent. You say, well, I don't think the church is supposed to be involved in politics and it's the separation of church and state. Reread your Bible. <laughs> Who is it that instituted the governing authorities? God has established the governing authorities, as we wrote about right here. And who is to hold them accountable? We are as the people to hold our government accountable. But we cannot just sit back and pray. I think we need to do that. I think we need to be actively engaged in calling and emailing our representatives. Clear up to our president. And we need to do that. I don't know if we have it on here. I don't think we have. Yeah, we do have Speaker of the House, John Boehner, as well. Call him. Tell him. There should be a number. There's a number there for the White House as well, for the president. You won't talk to the president directly, but you can leave a message for him. Say, I have a message for the president. But do it respectfully and prayerfully, that your heart will be right, because it's a testimony. We are to be ambassadors for Christ. We can respectfully voice our desire to the Supreme Court and all our political leaders to uphold the biblical view of marriage. 
that God instituted in the book of Genesis, we need to do that as God's people. Nehemiah also had a high view of God. He was a catalyst for revival by renewing his appetite for God, and the way he renewed his appetite for God was he had a high view of God. Notice what he says in verse 5. At the end of verse 4, he prayed before the God of heaven, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. What was he doing? Adoration of God. He was adoring the God of the universe. He was recognizing God not just as a ruler and authority and the sovereign, but he was a personal God who he was interacting with, and he wanted to honor the Lord, the true mighty God, a person who is strong and capable. He recognized God's majesty and his power to inspire worship, reverence, and godly fear. And he also remembered that God was a promise-keeping God of his covenant. The third thing we see, this third spiritual tool, is a repentant heart toward sin. How do we have that? It begins with prayer that acknowledges our guilt before a holy God. Repentance is not popular today. We want everybody to tell us how good we are and how great our country is and all these things, but prayer that acknowledges our guilt before God comes as we understand in our conscience that we have violated God's law. Our conscience is that God-given mechanism inside of our bodies that tell us what is morally right and what is morally wrong. And that conscience that is trained by the word of God will guide us and lead us. The Holy Spirit is able to speak to our conscience and to give us knowledge about ourselves and give us knowledge about our sin. And if you want to understand repentance, and confession of sin. Go to Psalm 51. David in his sin with Bathsheba said, Have mercy on me, O God, for I acknowledge my transgressions, and his sin is always before him. The Old Testament word for conscience is the word for heart in the Old Testament. God wants us to have clean hearts, as we sang about this morning, to create in us a clean heart. And that comes with repentance and confession of sin, admitting that we have violated God's law and we have sinned against him. In our culture today, people don't even know the Ten Commandments. <laughs> they can name five beers, five sports teams, five popular athletes, but they couldn't begin to name five of the Ten Commandments. That's where we are. We continue to sink lower into depravity as a nation. The moral strength of our country is determined by our passion or lack thereof for the holiness of God. God's rules are somehow today being interpreted as mere suggestions for those precious few who want to live by a higher moral code of conduct. Political leaders are attempting to live by their own set of rules rather than God's. 
But sin becomes exceedingly sinful in the light of a holy God. The fourth tool that we need is a radical faith to trust God. You think about the magnitude of this vision that Nehemiah had. There's no way he could have carried that vision out without a radical faith in God. To believe God to do something so big that had not been done in over a hundred years. <laughs> God, you're asking me? You're wanting me to sign the dotted line? You're wanting me to do something that nobody else has been able to do? And I think sometimes we get so limited in our vision and perspective and we only do those things that we can do rather than trusting God for what he wants to do. And that's why I say again about the property that God has given us, let's not limit our vision as a church on what we want to do. Because it's real easy to do. It's kind of scary to think about that God might want to do something bigger than any of us could comprehend. But I want to try to think that way. And I want to, God, give me that radical faith to trust you that you want to do something great at Bethesda Church and here in community. But let's remember how this radical faith is held in check. Here's how it's held in check. This radical faith has to be based on God's word. Because some people will step out and say, well, I've got this wonderful vision and they got this dream, but it came from eating pepperoni pizza too late at night and not from God. <laughs> got to make sure it comes from God's word. Look back in verse 8. What does Nehemiah do? He comes back and he reminds God of his covenant. The established through his spoken word. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. He's saying, This isn't my idea. This is yours, God. I'm reminding you, this is your vision. This is your heart. I'm just being your spokesperson and leader. Wow. Radical faith to trust God, to believe God for something that he wants to do. This radical faith has to be exercised in prayer. Nehemiah, over and over throughout the book, was a man of prayer, as we've seen in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And we have to be men and women of prayer. I know that Awana is going to be over in a couple more weeks. My prayer and desire is that people will come to a corporate prayer meeting. Not for my benefit, not even for your benefit, for the honor and glory of God. To pray for this nation to come back to God is going to require something a little deeper than we've been doing the last few years. If we are serious, I believe. And therefore, God is calling us as a church to come back. And if you want to understand why I have such a heart for that, would you start reading through the book of Acts? And seeing what God did in the early church, it was through prayer meetings that boldness and power came to the church. And I don't see it coming any other way. And wouldn't it be wonderful to have 100 people here on Wednesday night all over this auditorium I'm not going to have you come up and pray in front of 100 people. We'll just break off into groups, small groups, and we'll be raising a concert of prayer to God, saying, God, please give me desperation for you. God, please 
Give us a heart for America to come back to you. We've drifted so far from God. We need to come back. Come back to him. This radical faith is rewarded by God's grace. If we look in chapter 2, Nehemiah says again, he prays in verse 4, he answers the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. The king with the queen sitting beside him, he was a smart king, he had the queen with him. It's always good to have a lady's input. They're going to give it any... No, I mean, let's, <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governor of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. May I have a letter to Asaph. Boy, he, was just, he wasn't afraid to ask, was he? <laughs> A letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams. See, that's why I think the economy was so poor. They needed help. By the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. Now look at this next line. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. He recognized that it was not his great prayer, that it was not even his great radical faith, although I think he had both. But it was still the grace of God that made the difference. Let's stand for a word of prayer. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I have a question for you. Are you a man or woman of purpose? How about prayer. Do you have the discernment that you need? Do you have the humility that you need? Well, maybe for today we do, but we're going to need to pray for more tomorrow. <laughs> Each day we've got to pray for discernment, wisdom, humility, seeking the Lord. Maybe you are flying solo this morning, which means you are not really seeking the Lord. You are trying to do that which is right in your own eyes, in your own strength, your own power. And you have set aside the honor of God. You've done that personally. I want to encourage you, encourage you to come to the foot of the cross. The grace of God in your weakness of faith in your stumbling, in your sin, and would you lay it at the foot of the cross? Like David and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's how you receive his grace and forgiveness. Jesus died for your sin. He died that we could be forgiven, cleansed, washed new in Christ. If you have questions this morning of how you can have a personal relationship with Jesus, I'll be greeting folk at the back, one of the back doors here. Would you wait and speak to myself or somebody else? 
We can answer your questions. We can show you from God's word how you can become a child of God this morning. And you can walk out of here changed and free from the burden of sin. My challenge to you is don't resist the Holy Spirit. Because he may not convict you again. Would you respond to him? The other challenge I want to make is to our church, our congregation, to be people of prayer. I would ask you to strongly consider the corporate prayer meeting on Wednesday night. We desperately need God to move. And I think the reason I, I am, I just think there's such a power in corporate prayer of coming together. And I know that people pray. I'm not saying that people aren't praying. I know there are many people in our church who are great people of prayer, men and women and children alike. And I praise God for that. But there is a power and a strength and, and there's, there's a teaching in scripture that tells the church to come together to pray. And it's not just prayer, but it's an act of worship. When we come before the Lord, we are worshiping him in prayer. Recognizing our great need as we honestly assess our situation. And then I would encourage you to contact our government officials this week or within the month and respectfully ask them to stop ISIS to uphold the biblical definition of marriage that God has established, that we as the people of God will be the voice we need to be to honor him. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.